www.ethelcommunity.com. It sounds like our lips are still frozen. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. Hey, that's better. I know, it's really cold out there. Thanks for braving the cold and being here this morning. Glad you're with us as we're continuing in our 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel series. Um, if you want to flip there, we're going to be in chapter 2, um, the end of chapter 2. Text will be on the screen though as well. So, so far in our series, uh, we read about Hannah pouring out her heart to the Lord, longing for a child. She vows to make a, she, sorry, she makes a vow to the Lord that if he will grant her this, she would dedicate him to the Lord's service. And God hears her prayer, and he grants it. And so she raises the boy named Samuel, probably till he's about three to five years old, then presents him to Eli, the high priest. She prays this incredible prayer of uh, things we talked about last week, expressing relief, expressing joy, and expressing this incredible confidence in the Lord. And so today we start to get into Samuel's life, or at least the events that take place during Samuel's life, uh, starting even when he was a little boy. Now predominantly what we're going to see in this text that we're looking at today is uh, you know, kind of our, our title for today. Actually, our first title for today is Samuel's Godliness Contrast Eli and Sons. Right? That's what we're going to see in the text. But underneath this story, underneath what we're reading, I think there's a reason that's pretty apparent for the contrast between the two, between Samuel and between uh, Eli's sons. And it has to do with correction and discipline. So there's this kind of second alternate title for the message, The Importance of Correction and Discipline. Now that's the real title that I wanted to go with for this morning. Um, however, I was afraid if I put that in the promo going out this week that uh, maybe you'd decide not to come. So I uh, wanted to just slide an alternate title in there, like as if fighting the cold wasn't going to be enough this morning. Uh, then we had this obstacle of the topic. But um, now that you're here, I also figure you're less likely to walk out now that you hear what the topic is. So hopefully we're good. But you can take your pick. Samuel's godliness contrasts Eli and sons, if that's what you prefer, or the importance of correction and discipline. All right? So um, from here on out, it's pretty much all the same. So we're picking things up in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, starting in verse 11. And it says this, and we're just going to kind of work through this. We're not going to read the whole section at once. Verse 11, Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priests. priest. Now, the boy, talking about Samuel, Elkanah, his father. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat but, from you, but only raw. 
And if the man said to him, let, it, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Okay, we'll stop there for a moment. Now, so remember, uh, these priests are Levites. The, when the Israelites settled in the Promised Land, the tribe of Levi didn't, it wasn't granted a territory of their own. They could own land, they could dwell in certain cities, but they had no particular territory because they were chosen as the spiritual caretakers of the people. Right? Not, not, all, not, not all of the Levites had to be priests, but all priests had to be Levites. Okay, So God appointed them as the spiritual leaders for the people. That was supposed to be their focus. And he made provision in the law for their needs to be taken care of through tithes and offerings, and that included these uh, meat and uh, burnt offerings and so on. They were to be given certain portions of those offerings for food. However, this is a time, if we remember, where everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And no one was really obeying the Lord, including the priests themselves. And Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, what they're doing here is way out of line. Okay, so first off, they were supposed to burn the fat. And that was done as a pleasing aroma to the Lord, like an offering of a pleasing aroma to the Lord. No one was supposed to eat the fat. That was for God. So that went first. Then they were supposed to wave the breast of the offering before the Lord and take both the breast and the right thigh as their portion. Like that's instructed in the Scriptures. But here they send their servants to take even more than what they were allotted as their portion of the boiled meat. Now on top of that, they also came to get the meat before it was boiled so they could roast it for themselves. Alright, so there's... While they're describing what's going on here, the point is, is that this is kind of all in contrast to what God is looking for to happen here. So it can be really easy to read this and think, what's the big deal? They took a little extra meat, they wanted to roast it instead of boil it, why is that a big deal? The big deal is that this is not what God has commanded. It's not what he wanted. It matters when we do things our way instead of God's way. Right? Whatever area of life we're talking about. Like God gives us instruction for a reason. If we love him, we'll always be striving to accomplish those things. Every time, all the time. But here, pretty clearly, they completely disregard what God wants. And so then, even worse in this story than them disregarding what God wants, if someone knew the right way to take care of the offering and what was supposed to be pre presented to the priest... These two men would threaten them by force and basically take what they wanted. Right? So these guys were not only not doing things the right way, but they were going well above and beyond in taking matters into their own hands. And these were the priests. Right? These were the spiritual leaders of the people. It's no wonder that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now in contrast, what we see with Samuel already in verse 11, just one sentence, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Right? That's where this thing started. He was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Even as a boy, he was serving the Lord faithfully.
again in verse 18 when we continue with the story. Verse 18. Samuel was ministering before the Lord a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Right? And so just flashing back, of course, we see Hannah starts this whole story in incredible distress because God has closed her womb. He opens her womb and allows her to have Samuel, but then he blesses her by allowing her to have other children as well. And while maybe we wouldn't see, you know, six kids as a blessing, (laughs) it was clearly a blessing, right? It was clearly a blessing. Um, Now, on the surface, when we read that, we might think this is this cute story of a mom who gave her son to the Lord's service and makes him a new robe every year as he's growing. And, And that's happening. That's That's pretty neat. But there's a lot of spiritual significance about what we just read here about Samuel. Right? It says along with that robe, he wore an ephod. So an ephod is a finely decorated apron that was worn over the robe, kind of a vest type of thing. It was customary as part of the high priest's attire. So Eli is the high priest. And According to the way this would go, you would think that his sons would be the next in line to take over. Yet Samuel is the one, even as a boy, wearing this high priestly ephod. So he's basically acting on behalf of God as the high priest, only as a good and righteous high priest, and he's dressed for that part. Okay? So you can see the contrast between Eli, or Eli's sons and Samuel. Now, Samuel would not end up being the high priest. That was not going to be his role of Israel. God had other things in mind for him, even though his lineage would have made it acceptable. God had other plans for him. He would be the final judge and really the first real, uh, like the prophet of Israel. But the imagery that's being shown here is that Samuel, and not Eli, and not his sons, is God's man. Right? He's one whose heart is right after God. And that kind of gets further emphasized in the next section, and we see more contrast. So verse 22, now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my son's It is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Okay, so now we read that not only were Eli's sons dishonoring God with the meat portions and that they were entitled to, but they're also sleeping basically with prostitutes at the doorway to the place of worship, the tabernacle. Right? Now, in some of the surrounding cultures, prostitution and sex acts were common practice in many of the surrounding cultures as a a way of worship uh, to appease the gods or goddesses of fertility. It wasn't totally uncommon in the culture 
But again, these are not the ways of God. These are not the things that God wants to be happening. It's not what he commanded. So these guys, Hophni and Phinehas, are godless, worthless men who are engaged in pagan worship practices, yet they're the ones serving in the role of spiritual leader and priest for the people. And then there's Eli, their father. Like he knows what his sons are doing, and he basically says, it's not good people are talking about these things. Like, he doesn't correct it or say, it's not good that you're doing them. (laughs) He doesn't say, what you're doing is wrong and sinful. You need to stop. He's just concerned that people are noticing. And that that people are talking. Right? It's like, it's almost as if he isn't that that much concerned with their behavior. He's more concerned about their reputation. Now, Eli is not accountable for Hophni and Phineas's sins, personally, they are. But Eli is responsible to them, for them, to a certain extent. He's responsible for one, the, the poor parenting that he's done, and two, he's responsible for his poor leadership as the high priest. He should be striving for their obedience to the Lord's commands, but he never really takes strong action. So Eli, he's heard his sons are stealing from the Lord, that they're despising the offering, that they're threatening violence against the worshipers, that they are fornicating with prostitutes, they're defiling the tabernacle, and basically Eli just shakes his head and dismisses it. And I think there's something that we all need to see here, that, look, it's neither loving nor godly to let people keep walking in sin. Right? Like we're, we're all going to face God's judgment one day and we'll all be accountable for our actions. So when someone is choosing a sinful path and dishonoring God, the loving thing to do is to correct them. Right? That goes for whoever it is, whether it's our spouses, our kids, our friends, our community of faith. And of course it's not easy to confront someone about sin but it is better for them. And it's our responsibility to speak the truth, obviously to do it in love, but speak the truth. And we'll hit more on that in a few minutes. And and then there's another part of the problem here. I'm not even sure, when I read this one statement that Eli makes, I'm not even sure that Eli really gets what truth is. Like, listen to his spiritual advice. To them. He says, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate or intervene for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Now, it, it sounds good. It sounds spiritual and everything. But what exactly does that mean? If someone sins against a man, God will mediate or intervene for him. Like, look, if you sin against another person, it's saying God will step in on your behalf and protect you. But if you sin against God, you're out of luck. (laughs) Right? No, it's true. Nobody can intervene for us against God because nobody can stand against God. Nobody can protect us from God's judgment apart from faith in Christ. But the fact is, when you sin against someone, let's say you murder, let's say you steal... God cares about that too. 
Right? He's not going to be like, oh, no, 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 <laughs> don't worry about that. When you sin against another person, you're sinning against God too. It's, it's true that God made provision for sin. Right at the time of Eli, sacrificial offerings were made for the forgiveness of sin. So maybe in that sense, he's partly right. But the fact is that every sin that we commit is a violation of love. It violates either our love for God or our love for someone else. And often both. <laughs> right? Like God is going to deal with that sin one way or another. Hophni and Phinehas, they're doing both. And since Eli doesn't address it, it says God himself was going to do it. He was going to put them to death for their actions. Right? Pretty serious consequences. So, here you've got two boys heading down the wrong track. One father who's you know, a little iffy on whether he uh, even is invested in making sure that they're doing the right thing, is kind of messed up probably in his thinking and advice, and you got this messy situation. And by contrast, verse 26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Right? See the contrast here? Eli's son, our sons are sinning against God and also against other people. Samuel's growing in favor with both God and with people. Despite being raised by Eli, he's still turning out pretty darn good. Verse 27. And there came a man of God to Eli. So this is like a, a prophet-like man with a message from the Lord. Uh, we kind of talked about this, I think, uh, in week one. But, you know, they're, they're the, the, the office or the, the regularity of prophets isn't really happening so much yet, but there still are individuals who receive messages from God kind of typically on more of a one-time basis, and they come and they share it with who they need to. So that's what happens here. A prophet-like man with a message from the Lord, a man of God, came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? All right, so you can see that the message that's coming here, God's clearly calling them out for their wrongdoing. And he's about to bring some judgment down in the house of Eli. Verse 30, therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father, I, sorry, I promised, past tense, that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. 
Then in distress you'll look with an envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart. And all of the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come to come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house. And he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. All right, lot here. And this is prophetic, so there's a, a lot of uh, a nuance to all of this. But Eli is a Levite by birth. He's a descendant of Aaron's sons who were installed as the first priests of God. God is going to keep his promises that he made to Aaron as descendants, right? In regarding the priesthood and that sort of thing. But Eli's lineage is going to be cut off from being included in that promise. His line was soon going to end, at least as far as uh, serving the Lord in that way. Uh, and this does kind of unfold over the next couple of generations. Um, if you kind of track out what happens, Eli's, Eli's sons already have sons at this point in time because Eli's old right, before this kind of prophecy comes out. So there's a couple generations already alive. But Eli's great-grandson, who is the grandson of Phinehas, was Abiathar. He served as a co-high priest um, along with a man named Zadok under King David. Right, so that's, uh, he's going to be the second king that's coming down the road within less than 100 years. Abiathar sided with one of David's sons who was rebelling against David and trying to take over his throne. And to protect it, Solomon was anointed as king to replace David. Solomon removes Abiathar and makes Zadok the only high priest. Zadok is the one uh, is, is the one who the man of God refers to here as the priest that God will build a sure house for. Right? That's the lineage it's going to continue through. That's the, the way this is going to keep working. Abiathar's son, Joseph, so it would be Eli's great-great-grandson, he appears to be the one who is left to weep. Right? His name is Jonathan. Jonathan would become a high priest in Samaria, Right? When the kingdom splits under Solomon, he becomes a high priest outside of the legitimate part of the kingdom. But he's cut off from the true lineage that is tied into God's people. So within a few generations, Eli's house is cut off as priest. And interestingly, what, what do we read here that Eli's reaction is to all this? How does he respond to what he's hearing? We don't know. 
Nothing is said. No reaction. No repentance. No remorse. Nothing. And maybe that's telling. We don't know for sure, but maybe that's telling because he's going to get another prophetic word that we'll read about next week, and his reaction to that is going to be kind of, so be it. It's like he doesn't even care. Not a great response when God is correcting someone. <laughs> okay. So, this is going to bring us to the end of the text that we're looking at for today. Generally not the most happiest text in the world. Uh, mainly because there's like three verses that talk about how great Samuel is, and all the rest addresses the ungodly behavior of Eli and his sons. So Eli's refusing to correct his children. I mean, he said something at least, but really what he did was like less than a slap on the wrist to them. He didn't take action even though uh, the things they were doing were completely wrong. And God held Eli responsible for this. It was Eli and his lineage that he pronounced judgment on, not just Hophni and Phinehas, his two sons. Like, they'd be judged too, but it started with Eli. Because he failed as a father. He also failed as a spiritual leader. He wasn't willing to call out their sin. And it led others to getting an incredibly bad taste of who God was. As a high priest, he was a major part of the spiritual problems throughout the land. Now look, we have to be willing to call out sin. Like, that's true for all of us. It's true for me as a pastor, sure. But it's true for you as a Christ follower. It's true for you as a father or mother, as a brother or sister, (laughs) as a brother or sister in Christ, as a friend, It's not loving for us to ignore someone's sin. When we do, it allows them to continue in it, and often it spirals into something worse. In fairness, like, look, even if we do address it, they may continue in that direction anyway. Like, there's been plenty of people that I've talked to about issues, sin issues, and struggles that they have, but, yeah, kind of like Eli. So be it. Right? don't care that much. And when that happens, when we challenge someone, correct someone, um, that's on them, not on us. But we have to do our part. We have to be willing to correct and discipline our kids. We have to be willing. Like, if we don't, they're not going to cling to what's most important, right? Eli didn't do very much with his kids, but even when he tried, Hophni and Phinehas, nope, they refused to hear him out. And that's a dangerous place to be. It would ultimately lead to their death. So, a couple of things about correction and discipline that I want us to point out, I want to point out this morning as we kind of wrap things up here. Uh, The first thing is this, that it is to our benefit to receive correction or discipline. Right? It's to our benefit to receive correction or discipline. If Hophni and Phinehas had received correction to their discipline, changed their ways repented, got back to what God wanted, you know, probably this story goes a lot differently. But it's to our benefit to receive correction or discipline. It doesn't feel like it at the time, but it's true. It's to our benefit to receive it. So when someone takes the time to courageously address something they see in us that's out of line with God's heart, we need to think of it as something that can be good for us. 
Right? Proverbs 15.32 says this, whoever ignores instruction despises himself. He who listens to reproof gains intelligence. Right? You ignore instruction, it's like you're, you're despising yourself. Right? Uh, it, it's going to lead to bad things. But if we're willing to hear the correction, the reproof, we gain valuable perspective from it. Okay? So that's the first thing. It's to our benefit to receive correction or discipline. The second thing is this. Um, correction and discipline is easier to dish out than it is to receive. Right? Like we're quick to criticize and point out issues in others. And we might even be frustrated when they don't receive it. Well, but we're, we're re resistant to accept correction for ourselves. <laughs> and yet, yeah, listen to this incredible wisdom by the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 12, 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I, mean, I don't know about you, it's not always fun or easy to think of discipline in that way, right? For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness, right? When correction or discipline is given with the right heart, and when it's received with the right heart, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. In other words, we, we, we become more like Jesus. So, when you're the one receiving correction and discipline, try to do it with an open heart. For the young people, kids that are, right, it's for your own benefit. That's what they're supposed to do to keep pointing you to Jesus. If they don't do that, they're actually being bad parents. Right? We would look at Eli and say, man, this guy was not a good parent. We don't want our parents to be like that. You need them to point you, help point you in the right direction. So when they're doing it rightly, when they're doing it responsibly, don't despise them for that. For everyone else, don't despise your pastor or a Christian friend when they correct or discipline you rightly and responsibly. That too is for your benefit. Right? That, that's part of what we do as a community of faith. Be open and receptive to correction. Okay? So, um, correction and discipline, easier to dish out than it is to receive. But, when we're the ones who need to step in and correct someone, on our part, the next point is this, we have to make sure our hearts are right. We have to make sure our hearts are right. right? Like, we need to have hearts like Samuel, not like Hophni or Phinehas or like Eli. Hearts that are in tune and in touch with the Spirit of God and see things the right way. This is a pretty familiar passage probably for most of you. But Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is speaking and he says this, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice it? First take the log out of your own eye. Then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You do like a series of messages on that <laughs> passage alone, right? It's really easy to look at someone who's clearly out of line with God's ways and point fingers at them, especially when it's not personal. 
We don't know them, whatever. It's easy to criticize. But remember that it's far easier to see other people's faults than it is to recognize and accept our own. So make sure that your life and your heart is in the right place before talking to others about their issues. Now, once we've done that, the last thing is this. We need to lovingly speak the truth even when it's hard to do. And don't miss the word lovingly there. Right? So many times we're like, we need to be courageous and lovingly speak the truth to people. Because that's how we're all going to grow to be more like Christ. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I mean, the first part of that, speak the truth in love so we can grow up into Christ. And speaking in love, that's how we grow. That's how we become the body of Christ. That's how we become more of what God intends for us to be. Okay, so now, we all are probably pretty well aware as we think about these things, we talk about correction, discipline, Sin, all the issues here, we're probably all pretty well aware of ways we fail to measure up to God's perfection and holiness. Like we all have areas of our lives that don't reflect God's heart. If we aren't aware of anything, then maybe start by checking your pride or arrogance. <laughs> because I'm sure there's things that are stirring. Like no one here is without fault. And the good news for us is there is always room for mercy and grace when we've failed. There's always room for mercy and grace. God is just, he punishes sin, but he's also loving and forgiving. He's the one who gave us Jesus, his only son, to be a sacrificial offering for our sin once and for all. Right? Like our faith and our trust in him is what brings forgiveness and makes us right with God once again. So we're going to take a few moments here to take communion. And uh, just by way of explanation, I want to invite you to come in a moment and take the bread and the juice and just take it on your own up here at the table. Um, There's a little uh, garbage can for the cup when you're finished. As we do this, uh, we'll just have some music in the background. And it's just a reminder as you come that the, the, I'm sorry, the, 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 um, the bread and the juice is a reminder that Jesus gave his body and shed his blood on the cross, which that's what those things represent. And he did that to forgive sin for those who put their faith and trust in him. But this morning I want to ask you to take a moment to examine your heart and to bring to mind ways that you may need to ask forgiveness from God, that you may need to seek forgiveness. And then when you're ready, come to the table. Just take the bread and juice on your own as a reminder of the forgiveness that he has extended to you and what it cost him on the cross to do that. So I'm going to pray, and then we're just going to open the table for when you're ready.
Father God, you are you are an incredible God who loves us, who forgives us, who offers mercy, who offers grace. Yet you're concerned with our righteousness and our holiness. You want us to be holy as you are holy. You want to make us more and more like Jesus. And God, this morning, as we talk about correction, we talk about discipline, we talk about sin, and see this contrast between the godliness that's talked about in regards to Samuel and and the godlessness that we see in the others. We don't want to head down that path. We want to reflect your heart. So this morning, would you just stir up anything that's in us that we need to confess to you, that we need to ask your forgiveness for, that we need to lay at the foot of the cross and say, I'm sorry, God. I'm sorry for falling short. I'm sorry for how I've failed. I'm sorry for this sin. And ask for that forgiveness that you offer through Jesus made possible by the cross. So God, as we examine our hearts, stir those things up, and as we come to the table, allow it to be a reminder for us of the incredible gift that you've given in Jesus and the price that was paid to make us right again. We're grateful for all of this. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So just take a little time, examine your hearts as you need to, and feel free to come when you are ready. Thanks for listening to the podcast of the Portico Church in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. You can find out more about our church at porticocommunity.com.